0: If you're really passionate about a topic and you don't care if other people read it and you just want like an avenue for your creativity, it's an amazing reason to write a newsletter. Chances are, if you're that passionate about what you're doing, you're going to build really good content and build an awesome community around it. It might be slow, but that type of person doesn't necessarily care about the opportunity to monetize. Obviously, where I'm in the monetization of newsletter business, the other good reason to build a newsletter is because you can monetize it really quickly.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show where you get to see behind the scenes conversations with awesome thought leaders in a variety of subjects and investors and entrepreneurs in a whole range of industries. Today we have Jacob Schonberger on the podcast. He's the co-founder at SwapStack, which is a marketplace connecting publishers with advertisers for primarily newsletters. They also offer tools to help connect newsletter writers with a additional opportunities to monetize early, often, and in the best way possible. We discuss today with Jake, I say we, I believe it was just me in this conversation, Kyle was missing in action, which happens sometimes, we'll forgive him. The conversation, as I was getting derailed, covers Jake's career at Facebook in the New York office. I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone who worked at Facebook in the New York office before. He was there for a while during some interested interesting points in company history. I think I'm forgetting the numbers offhand, but he said something like, you know, when he was there, there were like 10 people. And then when he left, it was like 10,000. I'm exaggerating, but it was a big change. We discussed taking a professional pause to get a graduate degree in product design from Harvard, which is pretty cool. We also discussed Jake's personal publication, The Pre-Money List, a newsletter that helps connect startups with investors and vice versa. We'll get into all this and as always a lot more in this conversation. Uh, I'm going to do a quick word about our sponsor. I'm not going to do it right now. I recorded the soundbite a couple weeks ago. That's how it goes. And then I'll switch the episode. Enjoy. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by our friends at VASA, the virtual assistant staffing agency. We hired our first virtual assistants from VASA to assist with our operations running the show back in June. But VASA is not just for podcast editors. If you need some extra hands to free up your time, let VASA help you with hiring for administrative, technical, and creative work. That's graphic design, cold callers, social media managers, sales reps, video editors, admin assistants, and more. Free up your time to focus on your highest impact work and learn more about Vasa at Vastaffing.agency or by clicking the link in the show notes to schedule a free strategy session with their team. Alrighty, back to the show. Jake, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to be chatting today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Come to be here. Yes, definitely. So I want to ask you you know, we're chatting beforehand about a bunch of random stuff. And sounds like, you know, you've got a lot of business interests, you're invested in investing in startups, because that's kind of the content you create, you have a platform for other people to, you know, enhance their creative businesses, you could call it from not a business perspective, but just as a consumer of like, you know, interesting podcasts, interesting media, kind of like interesting experiments. What are some of the, I guess you could say favorite essay or favorite like publication, not because they're, you know, just like killing it in this interesting way, but like, just as a pure consumer, whether on your platform, like who's just writing stuff that like, you're just every week or however often it comes out, that's like a stop what you're doing and open it. Not like a save it to read it later or something. Just like stop what you're doing, read it right now.
0: Yeah, my answer is not going to be that exciting. When I started SwapStack, I was reading a ton of newsletters and honestly just got overloaded. So now I read maybe like five or so and their mainstays, like Ben Thompson, I signed up for his daily, the OG. And then one thing that I learned or kind of like a genre that I found when I started Swapstack was the concept of good news newsletters. And these are literally newsletters that are written not about like puppies and cute things, just about news that is, and not about like like miracles, just like news that makes you feel good, news that makes you like recognize, hey, there's actually good things going on in the world um, that can help complement all of the real world kind of like negativity that you find in mainstream news. Um, so there's one called One Good Saying, The Good Newsletter. So I'll dabble in those. And then I love NPR and BBC. And so my morning walks with my dog, I'll listen to BBC World Service. I've memorized the intro and I repeat that to my dog. <laughs> and then uh, I'll, I'll listen to it still like Tim Ferriss and a couple of the kind of like big, big podcasters. But yeah, honestly, nothing too exciting. For a while, I was trying to dabble into like a ton of different genres and it just became too much. I think for an average consumer, people probably consume, honestly, more newsletters than I do. I'm just talking to newsletter writers, reading newsletter snippets all day and I can't do
1: it. Yeah. What do you think? And again, this is, you know, we were talking earlier about like people transitioning from finance to crypto. And again, it's like, I can't speak on behalf of an entire industry and I'm kind of going to ask you now to speak on behalf of, I don't know, all consumers or something, yeah. but tough, tough position. But wh- like, where do you see this going? You know what I mean? In terms of like media, I think it, in one perspective, right. I ha- have this like view of the world and trends and it kind of applies to like media it applies to religion. It's just kind of like something's introduced and then uh, there's just kind of pe- some people stay on the main branch, then some people kind of branch, then some people branch off the other branch, right? There's like people who are like if use Judaism, for example, there's like still people who kind of live like a by the book, same sort of daily life experiences, the people 2000 years ago. And then there's the people who branched off and loosened up some of the rules. And there's the people who branched off and loosened up so much more and more. And then there's people who are just like culturally Jewish. And I think, you know, the same is true. Like there's some people who don't even know, like the online content sphere exists, right? They just like, they write books and their life as an author is no different. And there are people who read books and their life as a consumer is no different than people 150 years ago. It's like you read books and you read the newspaper i think that's kind of trend will always continue of like some people just stick with the thing and then the other people keep branching and branching and branching but like do you think we're kind of converging on like a, a point of like it's just becoming too much like everyone just like everyone having a newsletter in the future Do you see like twitter kind of already serving that in a micro purpose and newsletters are just like there's a healthy amount of people who just are the people who like to think in terms of essays but would never like write a book like wh- where do you see kind of individual content creation and consumption going. And we don't have to like get into podcasts to complicate that or like TV, just like the written word or just like written content going from both perspectives.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I think from actually from both perspectives, I'll try to answer the question in one, um, and I haven't thought about this, uh, this particular aspect of the question, so it might, it might be a riff a little bit, but, um, if you look at the mediums of consumption and creation over the last, say, five, 10 years, um, 10 years ago, there weren't that many. Maybe there's email, there's blogs, books, magazines, and then like some digital version of a magazine and a newspaper and whatnot. Um, fast forward to today, there's dozens of different mediums that you can go and consume content on. And I think we're kind of in like that that adolescent period of really figuring out what is the right content for the right medium. And there is definitely some version of content to medium alignment. And maybe that means like personal finance content can work really well on TikTok newsletters and in books, just three random ones. And then maybe that also means that content around sports works really well on TikTok, Instagram and Twitter, um, but not so well in newsletters. I think what's going to happen or what's happening right now is that there's so much opportunity to create a platform and get your voice out there. And as a creator, it feels like, hey, I have an affinity towards sports and I like to write. I'm going to try a newsletter or maybe I'll try Twitter or maybe I'll try like a micro newsletter or a blog. And ultimately, the folks that are reading it and consuming it the most on the right medium will kind of like gear that creator towards or those that like bundle of creators towards, hey, this type of content is best served on this medium. I don't know if that makes any sense, but my, my hunch is really that we're in this wave of just like medium creation and there's tons of mediums and tons of opportunity for anybody to become a creator. And it also means that consumers have a lot of opportunity, but also have a lot of work to do to figure out what is the right type of content I want to, want to consume and where do I want to consume it? And what kind of medium do I want to consume it through? I think that also bundles in podcasts, TikToks, Instagrams, uh, and like feed based. Kind of, kind of mediums. I think mean, it'll just take a while to figure out how do people want to consume content and what content is right for what mediums.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty measured take. I think certain things just again definitely benefit, right? You're not going to be able to tell a deep story and develop characters over tweets, so no one's like trying to publish. I mean, maybe people are, I don't know, but at least not it hasn't reached me that someone's like found a compelling way to put long, long form fiction via Twitter or via Substack. Maybe there is, I don't know, but. Whereas something like if you're just trying to keep track of like scores or like players or fantasy football, right. You're just like doing research, then being up to speed and kind of like trading or like investing, like using short-term signals. So that's, that's interesting. I guess my question is, do you have like an optimism for people to find and be reflective enough to like choose things deliberately that lead to like content creation being that positive? I just think a lot of people and myself included fall into patterns just kind of by default or by accident and then every so often i don't know at least this happens to me and this happened recently again where i like looked up and i'm like there's not really much gains besides entertainment and you know curing short periods of boredom uh, from the majority of what i consume then as if i you know could look back on the year and say i read the the, you know this entire series and learned a lot about the subject or really had like a deep experience i just don't know like do you see that people go in that direction in a good way? Or is that something that like will have to be kind of intervention based? The question there is, is, do you see like, is that a question around like short firm
0: content, like is short term content an avenue towards like healthy consumption patterns or?
1: Yes. Like, do you think we're trending towards people? Like, do you think things are going to get better before they get worse or, or if that made sense? Or do you think like we're kind of trending towards everyone and just continuing to become oversubscribed and fr- like fragmented? And it'll just be people like me, just like only after a period of realize of like, oh, I spent this really long period of time consuming things of little lasting value. And then kind of just choosing personally to make a change than not really having any like cascade. Yeah.
0: I imagine there's going to be kind of a wave of people that have a realization that like a realization that you had, That like hey i'm consuming a lot of this content maybe i'm consuming a lot of threads on twitter and it feels like i'm reading like deep reads but i'm not and then i think there it's going to be slow but there's going to be a wave of people that kind of just grow up in a place where or grow up in like a mental space where they don't want to be hit with like quick snippets all the time and they just want to really understand what is this person talking about or what is this topic and how do i learn more about it that type of stuff i think Actually, I don't know. I was about to say it, it's driven by the consumer, but like the TikTok algorithm, if you read about the TikTok algorithm, it's so powerful and it's like 10 times more powerful than the Instagram or Facebook algorithms and understanding what people want. It just draws people into these, these loops of just like consuming more content. So yeah. I don't know. I realize that's a non answer, but I think if I were to choose, is it going to get worse before it gets better or better before it gets worse? Probably worse before it gets better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What led you to? becoming a business person, like in kind of building your career and hobbies around this creative creative ecosystem?
0: Yeah, I mean, the newsletter thing is honestly very new to me. Um, I, I'll i give like a quick history of my background if that's okay, but... Uh, you don't
1: even have to rush it. And we got time.
0: <laughs> oh, cool, okay. But <laughs> well, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's, yeah. But no, I, I studied uh, product design in undergrad and while I was growing up, uh, my dad's an entrepreneur. His dad's an entrepreneur in a very different way. He He's in real estate, but he was always running his own businesses. And grandpa was in, actually in advertising, but very different generation. There were like his generation was always doing a ton of stuff, um, but he always worked for himself. And as I grew up, my dad always um, instilled in me that something along the lines of you have to make money and not get paid. And the concept there was that if you get paid, somebody can take it away from you. But if you make your own money, then it's all on you. And a lot of the ways that we grew up and the types of work and types of jobs and careers we were thinking about were kind of like, I looked at him for advice. So I was kind of um, aligned in that direction. Ended up studying product design and business in undergrad, um, went to RPI, Rensselaer Polytech. The long story there is that I transferred three times because I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I landed at RPI. Started a company out of undergrad. It's called Pay With Me. It was a pin for payments uh, platform. We were basically trying to build a social motivation tool to ensure that if you had an organism if you had to organize a group um event with friends um our platform basically made it easier for that organizer to get paid back and at that time there was no venmo and paypal kind of sucked and i had too many situations where you know i organized a dinner or a night out and i had to do all the work of organizing that event and also be the jerk afterwards and asking my friends for money. <laughs> and I was just like, that's ridiculous. Um, but worked on the startup then, worked on that for about two years. Honestly, I was just super young. It was myself and four friends from undergrad. We had a platform, it was great. We won a competition and we transferred a couple, th- or did a couple thousand transactions, um, ultimately shut that down. Did a short stint at Boeing, doing technology research, and then went to Facebook. Um, ended up there for about five years. And then I was there from 2013 to 18. So the company wasn't small. It was about 4,000 people when I joined, 30,000 when I left, crazy. Um, (laughs) And I was always in the New York office. So I did see like a small office turn into a big like corporate office. And a couple of years in the, the company, rightfully so, just became very process driven, very organized, and it was just less fun. And everything that I had learned about like, startup life or like making your own money um started to get whittled away most of that time I was in a sales org um and so that did feel entrepreneurial kind of just we're given a quota given some resources and we're told like go make it work and that was kind of fitting the bill of go make your own money um but as the company got like more and more process driven started bringing in more like consultant types that's entrepreneurial a little bit more boring my animal needs were met but I knew that I just wanted to go do something else um At that time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do from a a company perspective, but I knew I wanted to start something. Also knew I wanted to get back into technology, so I went back to school. Just tell me to stop talking when I'm rambling. Um, Cool.
1: Uh, No context.
0: (laughs) um, Yeah, I ended up going going back to school. I did a grant program called Design Engineering. It was hosted by the Graduate School of Design at Harvard and the um, engineering school there. Uh, basically take classes at both, do a thesis, do some research, and then take a bunch of classes wherever you want, either MIT or Harvard. And while I was there, I was like, I'm just going to do some weird stuff. I'm going to research. I'm going to play with technology. Um, I ended up out in Bulgaria working with a nano satellite company, amazing experience. I just, was just trying to figure out, Hey, is frontier tech interesting to me? And is it something I would want to work in? Um, the company was called EnduroSat. Um, the quick snippet of what I ended up looking on there was EnduroSat was, or it is a, they manufacture satellites So really small, like one U to six U satellites and all the components, they build them from ground up and sell them to research institutions. Um, and when I got there, they were trying to figure out how do we, they recognize, Hey, we're at like the bottom of the tech stack. We're at like the manufacturing level. And we want to get to like data and services and have higher margins and just be able to also kind of um, edge into the Western market they were selling a lot to European markets and Asian markets um, we ended up building this business called the shared satellite service which is still running basically what we were doing um, we were recognizing that space 2.0 opened up this entire ecosystem around access to low Earth orbit which meant there was tons of companies building new solar panels um, new systems new um, like propulsion systems, new like components that you would add to a satellite or put on a satellite to do whatever research or to communicate with Earth. But those startups, they needed to prove this is like the biggest chicken and the egg that I've ever started. Um, those startups needed to prove that they could work in space, that their components could work in space before they could make any sales, before they could go to any other company and say like, hey, put this on your satellite. They would be like, does it work in space? They're like, I don't know, that's been there. Um but because EnduraSat was kind of building soup to nuts satellites and they were testing their own satellites, we basically just said, let's build a bigger satellite than we normally would, and let's sell some of that space to these startups that are trying to prove that they could work in space. And we call it the Shared Satellite Service, basically just renting, um, renting space. The same business model, essentially, that SpaceX and labs use when they're going to go into space. Um, sorry, that was a big tangent. Space Inspection is really fun. And um, is back. cool. Space is cool. Um, came back to earth, um, second year of grad school, started the pre-money list. Um, I was doing some venture scouting while I was in grad school because there's a lot of really cool companies up in Boston. Um, And venture scouting was really fun, but I actually found it to be extremely inefficient for the founders. Um, The process, I would basically interview a couple of founders a week, then do those interviews over to um, the two funds I was working with. And if the funds were interested, I would set up an interview. More than not, the fund alignment to that company wasn't there. And so I'd have to tell the company, like, sorry, I'll try again in a couple months. Um, and I realized I was doing all this work and I knew a lot of people that were like either in the venture world or interested in it. So I started a newsletter because I figured, hey, that's a better way to distribute these companies, this research that I'm doing and these companies that I'm finding to people that are also in that same industry and maybe want to have a conversation, maybe want to invest or at least could collaborate in some way. Um started the newsletter, um, pandemic hit, graduated the master's program into the pandemic. And so I just like kept working on the newsletter. Um mm-hmm. ended up joining on deck, the the uh founder fellowship at on deck and met my now co-founder who had a very similar path. He was at um Amazon as a PM, quit, started a newsletter, pandemic hit, kept working on the newsletter and joined on deck and um to like actually answer your question when I started that newsletter and when I had finished up school, uh, pandemic just seemed like a really interesting time to start a business. And I just said, yeah, let's poke around. Let's not take a job and let's just see if there's any opportunities here. And the newsletter created opportunities to meet a lot of founders. Also ended up meeting a lot of other writers. One of those writers was we so my co-founder Jake had worked with Packy McCormick a bit on one of his pieces. And then we kind of watched as he started selling his sponsorships for
1: say 2000 dollars 4000 dollars For not boring. For not boring. Yeah. Now yeah. Don't so even know come with your coffee. Shout out Come with your coffee. I haven't tried it yet, but it's been advertised in my brain lots of oh, times.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and it was just fascinating watching him like we sold for SwapSteck, we sold one sponsorship to him. Um, and then he just took off and he doesn't need, um, he has tons of inbound, but we were meeting a ton of other newsletter writers that were watching his rise to fame. And they were just saying like, why can't I sell my sponsorship, uh, sponsorship slats for that much money? Why can't I be the next pack and McCormick? And there was hundreds of these writers that are really talented. They just don't have the business background. They don't have like the same kind of growth methodology as pack and There can't be a hundred different packies, but tons of people can make a good clip on their newsletters. Um, We just started hearing that same story over and over again and ultimately figured, hey, there's a cool business here. Could be really fun. We write our own newsletters anyway, so let's just try it, see what happens. Um, That's a really long answer. The short answer is I knew I wanted to start a company again, graduated into the pandemic, and it just felt
1: was the right time. The only hole I feel like I missed in the story was how you became a venture scout. Oh yeah. Um, Everything else was pretty sequenced nicely. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I I had done a, an internship at a, a VC firm in undergrad at some point. So, and that was interesting. I just felt like it, I was too young. I didn't have enough experience. It, I I didn't understand companies in a way where I was actually intrigued by the work, but. I learned enough there where I was like, Hey, I want to go back and do that again at some point. Um, and then honestly, I just applied to a bunch of, um, programs while I was in grad school, um, and kind of leaned on the ability to say like, Hey, I have this ex Facebook network. Now I have this Harvard network. Um, I'd love true and you're in person in Boston and like a pre COVID Uh, era. yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I kind of sold in access to those networks. Um, and I think that's what got me through the door. Um, the company or the funds were amplifier ventures and tiny capital. Um, so they okay. weren't like really big funds. There's a lot of other larger funds that do scout programs that give you checks, check writing power, but it was fun. It was a blast. I would definitely. Do is,
1: is tiny Andrew Wilkinson or am I off? Yeah. Same. Career. Okay. Yeah. He is. He's cool. I, uh, the MFM with him, that's like an interview that sticks out in my memory. I know. So back to like the point we were at the beginning in terms of like local, that's like, that's the thing, right? You consume a lot of content and periodically something is really good. And uh, Andrew Wilkinson, my first million episode that really stood out in my memory just now to be able to remember all that, but maybe I'll put that in the notes if I remember the, I gave enough keywords for people, right? That's, that's on you y'all, but (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty cool. So the business model of Swapstack, what is that for people? Like, can you just connect the dots there?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, the quick one-liner of what Swapstack is, um, we're a platform that enables um, newsletter, independent newsletter writers to monetize through sponsorships, affiliates, and tip jars. Um, we basically, our, business, our, our mission on the publisher side is to help publishers make money. Um, on the advertiser side, we essentially help advertisers where we're seen as kind of like an independent newsletter ad network. So we help advertisers identify the right newsletters to sponsor and help them actually run those sponsorships. Um, the business model uh, so SwapTick is free for publishers. Um, we provide them a tip jar for free affiliate deals that they can run um, and then direct relationships with advertisers. Um, so any direct relationship with an advertiser that results in kind of like a flat rate purchase. So if you're running a newsletter, you sell an ad that is hundred dollars and an image and a in logo, and you charge a yeah charge hundred bucks. Um, we charge ten percent to the advertiser. Um, so advertiser pays one ten to use the service. We take ten bucks. Writer gets a hundred. Um, affiliate deals um, they're kind of baked in, free for publishers to to run. And it's kind of the same thing as an affiliate model. So there's a platform fee in there, but it's kind of um, kind of baked in. So it's, we're not really taking from either side. We just have a platform fee to like list, essentially. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. And then we have yeah. some version of a managed service for large campaigns. If a brand comes to us and says, hey, we want to run sponsorships across 50 different newsletters, yeah. we have a tool that helps us facilitate that. Um, but we take 10% from both sides because it's a
1: larger lift, a lot of management, that type of stuff. That makes sense. And the, the plug and play feature is pretty cool. I like wanted to see, and I had to go do all the things to get access to it. Not that it was complicated. It was just like, I didn't have my profile set up and I was like, now I need to set it up. So like, I can gain access to it. How did that come about? Like, what was the motivation for, for that piece? Yeah, that was interesting.
0: So at the very beginning of swap stack, so was really like the first iteration was. Slack channel. I think we had a card <laughs> landing page and then a bunch That's of with two R's for people who are yes. curious, right? dot yeah. um, co um, landing page builder. But we were just a, a marketplace that was connecting people to each other. And that was the first product. The second product that we built was an invoice tool that enabled newsletter writers to invoice brands. Um, and that we built that because we figured, hey, we're doing the first step of the sponsorship, which is making the introduction. And then we want to do the last step, which is the payment. So we're bookending this experience. And in our mind, there was a one type of sponsorship, which was a flat rate. They're like, $100, you get listed on my, or you get um, featured on my newsletter. What we didn't think about, honestly, this was kind of like us being ignorant, but that's the beauty of startups. Um, we didn't realize people would want to buy on affiliate basis like a cpa basis so cost per conversion or cost per click cost per lead and from that perspective that is all um there there's technology there that brands come to newsletters and say like hey i have this program already can you just like tap into the program um and i'll pay you per click based on what my program says um once we saw that started happening um, we realized hey we're introducing these people and we're getting taken out of the economics and we're not like we're creating the value but we're not realizing the value um and we needed to figure out okay if there's really 50 50 brands that want to do these affiliate type deals and then brands that want to do these or open to doing these like flat rate type deals we need to be able to service both um so that's originally how we we figured hey why don't we just build that into our system um, and Um the way that we spun it and the way we made it much more valuable to publishers is that we basically collected information from an advertiser. We said, Hey, do you want to run, are you open to running flat rate sponsorships, or do you want to do more affiliate work? If they wanted to do affiliate work, we would require them to be on the plug and play program. What the plug and play program does is it pre-approves publishers. So you, as you experience, you create your profile in Swap Stack. Once you connect your Stripe, finish your profile. You get access to, I think we have 40 deals right now. We're going up to 80 by the end of this month. Um, but those are affiliate deals that you can run without ever talking to the brand. You don't need to do anything else. You're already approved to run that. Um, so we kind of just took out all of the work of going back and forth and ask, um, having those advertisers require a publisher to be part of their network. We just enable publishers to immediately have access to these, um, these affiliate deals. Um, but yeah. The origin of it was a recognition that we were kind of being, kind of being cut out of the value creation and the value realization. And we needed to have multiple ways for advertisers to transact.
1: What was another big thing you kind of overlooked at the beginning? Like it could be just another example of being cut out of the deal, for example, in terms of like being separated from the value creation, the value realization, uh, that you've gone on to correct, but something that was just a total, like didn't think of that day one.
0: Yeah. I mean, this one's super obvious and we're still fixing it, but we built a lot of stuff. We like, we, we approached building in a very lean startup and kind of do things that don't scale kind of methodology. So like whatever we can do the fastest to prove a hypothesis or disprove a hypothesis, that's what we'll do. And so the original marketplace still connects and still connects, um, advertisers and newsletters over email and it CCs us on those emails, but We basically built a disintermediation tool for our own marketplace. Um, And we've known that it's been an issue for a while. Right now, what we're doing is like bringing everything on platform, building a on platform chat experience. Um, Yeah, that's not one that we've corrected yet, but we know we're like, we've used it enough and we used it to the point where we are creating value. We're realizing a good amount of that value, but we know that there's a good amount of folks that are kind of going off network. Um, so we're bringing everything on.
1: What changes would you say you've seen? So I don't know total wise, if you've been in this a full two years, but you know, there's all this hype at the beginning of COVID or maybe like a month or two in when and I use COVID is a blanket term for the period of time we all know I'm referring to, yeah. but what would you say are some like, there's all this hype that's like the greater economy is going to be X, this is going to happen. Like everyone's online now. Like this is just a big, like what? kind of big bold predictions about this whole everyone's gonna have a newsletter, like creator economy is gonna go from zero to a million came true. And then what was kind of overhyped or what like was the opposite. Like what what was everyone saying was going to happen? And what have you seen now kind of two years later with this kind of unique perspective you have? Yeah could be measured in publications, advertising revenue. I mean million ways you could measure that. Yeah, I think there's there's probably three different
0: ways that or three different perspectives. One is Going back to our earlier conversation on the consumer side, um, the very clear logic, while everybody was stuck inside, couldn't do anything else. People were consuming a lot more content. If you're a newsletter reader, you read a lot more newsletters. Once the world started opening up and you're going back to work or you started seeing friends, you just have less time and you drop off and you kind of like narrow down into the newsletters you want to read. Um, that's one perspective. The other is from the I guess, casual creator perspective. Um, Folks that started newsletters didn't get super into it or didn't see explosive growth during COVID. Um, same thing as consumers. When world started opening up and other interests started or other opportunities and activities and hobbies started being available again, they probably stopped writing. So you saw which a big drop off of people actually writing or continuing to write. Um, and sorry if you hear something, there's uh, folks in the hallway. But I think that, that's kind of like a healthy weeding out of bad content and healthy weeding out of people that are consuming, um, consuming actually what they want and not because they have time on their hands. So they need something to do. And then the third perspective, so that first was consuming or consumers creation and then monetization in general. I think we saw with like what happened with Substack, they, their revenues were not as impressive as everybody thought they would be. Um, and that's directly related to how much money the creators on so, uh, Substack are making. There is 100% a limited amount of people that can make a full living off of creating a newsletter or just creating a newsletter. Um, I think we will definitely see more and more people who kind of left the Atlantic to be on their own go back to the Atlantic. We're already seeing that. And the people that really want to be creators, that love the lifestyle, they're going to have to be multi Channel creators or multimedia creators, kind of like like your approach. You have a newsletter, podcast. Um, you can monetize each of those channels, but if you're not big in either place, you're not going to make a living. Um, so I don't think any of those three perspectives are like really interesting or really new, but it's definitely what we saw, and I think it's healthy, um, okay. somewhat related to the hype curve, like. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be a hype of newsletters. Substack is really exciting. When I started my newsletter, it's it's a really interesting dopamine hit when you get notifications that you have a new reader. Um, and that's fun. But once your external motivation goes away or once there's like other stuff that's buying for your time. Um, if you're not super dedicated to writing a newsletter or if you're not like a really good writer or seeing really good growth, you're going to go
1: do something else. And That's fine. Yeah. That gives me two questions. Uh, Any I can, you can ask one and then ask me for the second one again. You forget. But first one would be who, you know, what's today? September 7th, 2022. That'll let everyone know exactly how long it takes me to go from taking this <laughs> and publishing it. But on September 7th, 2022, what is a good reason to start a newsletter? And what is not a good reason to start a newsletter? And then I want to get, I want to circle back to like what you've learned about growth because that's something you talked about as well. Like from observing all these people, like what are the common patterns of, newsletters that grew and newsletters that never really enjoy the dopamine of the notification bell. Yeah. Um,
0: Good reasons to start a newsletter. Um, I guess there, there's a couple I'll just ramble off whatever I have in my head, but um, if you're really passionate about a topic and you don't care if other people read it and you just want like an avenue for your creativity, it's an amazing reason to write a newsletter. Chances are, if you're that passionate about what you're doing, you're going to build really good content and build an awesome community around it. It might be slow, but that type of person doesn't necessarily care about the opportunity to monetize. Obviously, I'm in the monetization of newsletter business. The other good reason to build a newsletter is because you can monetize it really quickly. If you do have, we see a lot of folks that have a podcast or a blog where they run a community that start newsletters as like secondary mediums or a second medium for those existing um, platforms or communities that they have. Really good reason to start a newsletter is to complement what you're already doing. That kind of encompasses a bunch of reasons. But if you're already creating content, if you're already creating knowledge in general and you just want to share it with people, a newsletter is an amazing avenue to do that, especially if you're already creating that content or already creating that um, the knowledge. Um, if you want a second revenue stream if you want to like dabble in the creator landscape and see like hey could i actually build a lifestyle through something that i'm writing and you have an idea just go for it um i honestly don't know if there's a bad reason to start a newsletter i would say there's bad reasons to continue writing a newsletter um if you do if you keep writing because you just think you should Honestly, I don't know if this is a really good answer, but yeah, I'll probably have to come back to that one on what's a bad reason to start a newsletter. Yeah. I'll skip that one
1: for now. You need to gotta be ready for the, the devil's advocate against <laughs> the core of your existence right now. But I do like, yeah. the, you know, the healthy pauses can be good and, and renew, right? Especially if you aren't dependent on it. It's like, stick a break and kind of like, you know, people don't unsubscribe because you stop publishing. No, definitely uh, not. Sometimes yeah. open rates don't suffer usually the same. I don't know I've taken long gaps, I had a period of a lot of, obviously I don't think I've enough subscribers to have a scientifically valid data set to say these things, but things were pretty much the same in terms of engagements when I sent them out everywhere versus when they're periodic. And there's yeah. a million things you can analyze both ways.
0: Yeah. There's a, yeah. Interesting about like, like our business does depend on, on people becoming like, very consistent writers. Um, the reason I'm I'm not saying like everybody should start a newsletter is because the core of our business is really run or is really driven by people who have been writing for, say, like six months to a year who have, say, 15000 subscribers and up. That is where like the core, most of our GMB comes from. Um, and so our business is really fueled by that kind of group of newsletter writers. Um, our emotional drive actually comes from that long tail so we Mm look at a lot of publishers that just started a couple months ago and only have say like a couple hundred to a couple thousand subscribers personally my newsletter only has a couple thousand subscribers so it's not big either um but we help a lot of those writers make their first dollars on the internet and that's just freaking amazing (laughs) we get notes from people saying um Um, I'll, i'll share with a couple with you after the call but we get notes from people saying like hey you guys just helped me make my first dollar from my writing or like, this is the first time a creative pursuit has like enabled me to just make money. And that's not driving our business, but it is driving like our emotional desire to keep going because it's really cool. And maybe in a year, that person is the next back in McCormick or they're like able to quit their job and do something else or like start whatever business they wanted to before. Um So there's like a really interesting a- aspects of a, the founder journey and just like what, um Being a creator and monetizing your work can do for people, and being an enabler of that is just really fascinating, really fun. Um, but I'm definitely not in the business of going around and saying, like everybody needs to write a newsletter. It needs to come from like a really good place, and you need to want to do it.
1: You know, what separated or tactics or common patterns, the ones that have joined your platform six months ago and now they're in that sweet spot? Like why are people getting there? Why are they growing the ones that are? Is it cause yeah, they're writing really good threads on Twitter or is it, <laughs> it something else?
0: Honestly, some of them probably, yeah. Some of them are probably like really good at Twitter. I am terrible at Twitter. Um, but there's definitely a chunk of people that are just really good at Twitter, either they have a really big network or they strike a chord and that they help parlay that into a strong newsletter, but that's not everybody. That's probably like 5% of folks. The rest are just very consistent. They don't need to be on like a very specific cadence but they're very consistent in what they write and what they write about and their style and kind of like the depth of their work. Um, it's very easy for people to share content that they know is going to be good when the person they're sharing with it is going to read it. Um, and so it doesn't need to be consistency. doesn't need to be like every single day at 10 o'clock you're writing 300 words, it can be like. Once a month, I put out a, a deep dive. but as long as that deep dives, the quality of that deep dive stays the same. The kind of format of that newsletter is generally the same. And you just like write like you're talking to a person and you communicate with your community and recognize that you're building a community and engage with them. Those are the types of renders that will see consistent growth as long as they stick with it. Very few folks are going to see the, the hockey stick growth. Um, like in any business send in life, it's just consistency and keep doing it.
1: Yeah. With your newsletter, you kind of briefly introduced, you know, interview founders, kind of like you were doing, and instead of just sending it to Andrew and Amplifier, uh, you now send it to like whoever's willing to read it. Is that still the main mission? Have you had, have you closed like successful matchmaking and do you monetize? yeah so
0: went through a couple different phases with pre-money for the last eight months. It's been the exact same, but at the very beginning i I was actually sending out twenty companies a week that just launched um and I tried to monetize that version, so I went from twenty to ten, when it was just way too many a week. um The way I was monetizing that version was well, i guess the general goal was always. Let's help founders that either just um, launched or are about to raise, just get more exposure in general. So that first iteration, when I was featuring 20 then 10 companies a week, um, the purpose was just get, just be a compliment to a product on launch um, and get these companies in front of more eyeballs that are maybe like more pointed. Um, I tried to monetize that through Substack. I think I made it a hundred dollars a month and the premium version of free money at that time was, you get all the companies and you get another, um, email, or you get a link to an air table that had the contact information for those companies. And so if you're an investor, you're reading pre-money, you wanted to reach out to these companies, I give you the contact info. What I realized a 10 companies a week, again, was just way too many. Um, and I was almost limiting the growth that I could, um, limiting the amount of value that I was providing to founders. Um, by gating contact information behind Paywall. Uh, because I was getting a bunch of people emailing me saying, hey, this company is cool. How do I get in contact with them? And I would say, like, you have to pay for it. Um, and then I'm just not doing the founder any favors. Um, so that in combination with 10 companies just taking too much time, I kind of took a step back and recognized, hey, these founders that I'm talking to, they really do have an issue where first time founders, early stage founders raising their first money. They just need more conversations with investors. Um, so I chunked it down to two companies a week. Now it's two companies about every other week and I made the format very simple. So it's all bulleted. I don't write anything. I'll do an intro. That's about it. Um, but I'll write, what is the company? Who's the founder? What is the one line, one liner about the company? What's the longer description where their traction indicators and what are they raising and who's raised or who's invested? Um, and then I have a button that just allows anybody who's reading the newsletter to request an introduction and I make an immediate introduction. Once I started doing that, I saw more and more companies applying to be part of free money. And I saw, I saw a bunch of investors actually requesting introductions. Um, and I don't do a great job because it's really difficult to like close a loop on, hey, did this fund or did this company end up going and raising more money after I made introductions or did this, uh, introduction result and investment um i don't track in every single one but i know that there's been a handful of of introductions that have resulted in uh, a fund leading around or like a seven-figure investment um and that has been extremely cool and now what i've been doing is when those types of things happen i know the i get to i have a little no code stack set up so i can see like what all the introductions who are the founders that are receiving introductions, what investors are interested in, what kind of companies. Um, I reach out to most of those investors, but I also work with a couple of syndicates. Um, And when I see a specific company getting a lot of interest from certain types of of investors, um, I'll introduce that founder to a syndicate um, and they'll raise part of the, like an allocation, part of their round, um, and I split the allocation. So I'm slowly kind of edging towards a little bit more of a structure more measurement and also just like seeding the ground for pre money to turn it into its own fund. Maybe it's unsyndicated first. But playing the
1: long game, playing the, the very principled approach in terms of the becoming a principal, right? Just like monetizing it via the upside of the opportunities you're discovering.
0: Yeah. It's long-term I'm sure if I had stuck with like the hundred dollars a month model, I could get a couple more folks to convert, but I'd rather be able to raise a fund and have something really interesting and like work with a couple of really interesting companies from an investor perspective, then make a thousand dollars a month. That makes sense.
1: The question to, it's softball. What are just, this is kind of the free shout out for interesting company TBD has not raised yet that you've just uncovered and the world is not appreciating as much as you're appreciating it. I'll talk about a company. I just featured that I'm pretty excited about, um,
0: called brand XR. Um, they're in like the VR XR space or VR AR type space as X, just like, what's the X X of like anywhere between like, um, like fully immersive virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, they kind of do both. So it's like whatever reality, um, they're just building for whatever reality makes sense for whatever project. Um, but what they built, what they were originally doing was they were helping companies kind of build virtual experiences for their employees. They ultimately turned into a platform that is more of a SaaS product. Um, and it helps companies again create AR and VR experiences for new employees, um, for their for their customers, for like new customers to learn how to use their products, that type of thing. Um, just a really fascinating application of AR and VR. Um, and one of the syndicates that I work with is an ex Facebook syndicate. Um, and there's a lot of people there that are interested in metaverse in general. Um, and their metrics are really good. They have about 500 K in MRR or ARR, um, and they're raising their pre-seed right now. Um, they're just moving really quickly. And I think those are one of the companies that we'll see a, like ARVR was in the trough for disillusionment for a while. It's slowly coming out of it. And now we're going to see like this is the fruits of, or this is like where the technology can really have an impact outside of like gaming, pornography, video, et cetera. Um, it's like a real world application. Um, yeah, that's only one company to check out. Just really fun. Not the most exciting company in the world, um, but just one of those. Yes, yeah, is that B2B? That's B2B. It's just taking t- cool technology and figuring out like, okay, how does this cool new technology that was kind of really invented 30 years ago, how is it actually going to
1: work and how it's going to impact um, enterprises in a large scale now? That's awesome. You have one more shout out you want to give or are you, are you satisfied? I'm going to shout out Voyage Foods. Um, okay. I have no direct connection to them, but my
0: sister just worked for them. She's doing a grad program. She does intern there. And I'm starting to get much more interested in food tech, ad tech, ag tech, and green tech and voyage foods they basically create um a peanut butter replacement so they have they basically make peanut butter without peanuts um it's non-allergenic they don't have any supply chain issues and they can make it in a really environmentally friendly way um there are so many companies like that that are building in the food tech space that will have humongous impact on the environment which is really
1: awesome. what's the uh, or what's the what's being buttered I'm not sure. sure. That's the technical term.
0: <laughs> I think that is the technical term. Um, I don't know. I don't know the the science. I think that's their bread and butter.
1: It, there you go. But like, you don't know if it's like an almond or a sunflower or just like a. No, it's no, it's it's not a. Or it's, it's just like a like a, a decaffeinated peanut, but it's not caffeine. It's D whatever is in peanuts that's bad for people. Yeah,
0: I think it's more like a lab grown peanut. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just it's like their butter, own sort of production.
1: fish right yeah you need to check out the zero acre farms you follow them at all uh no <laughs> okay shout out to the uh the lewis and kyle show episode with seed oil disrespector and joe consorti if you follow seed oil disrespector on twitter do you see any of that universe of twitter no i'm uh okay yeah i'm not a... <laughs> a rabbit hole People who listen to more than one episode of this podcast, thank you for being a, a loyal listener. But the we talk about seed oils a lot on the podcast, or at least I have, just like the canola oil, corn oil, vegetable oil, like yeah. that being bad. That, that's like a kind of well, palm oil is actually not considered one of the the hateful eight, as Doctor Kate Shanahan would say. There's what like a saying? whole. This is like you know, you know more than anyone probably the uh, the depth of like rabbit holes and jargon and thought leaders and kind of little bubbles of like every little internet community and I'm a, I'm a resident of of the seed oil internet community but anyway in terms of like food tech there's a company called Zero Acre Farms that's gained some decent publicity kind of riding the seed oils are bad a meta trend and trying to replace it with like a uh bacterial fermentation cooking oil type thing so Interesting, interesting food tech startup. I don't know if they've raised or not. I feel like they have. They had a pretty swanky launch that seemed like pretty, pretty buttoned up uh, yeah. in terms of like their PR strategy. So that's my contribution to the food tech conversation. Cool. Yeah. I'll check them out. That. And then I'm a, a happy customer of Liver King from TikTok. If you know Liver King, he's pretty memes pretty much into uh, Oblivion. But
0: For the industry that I'm in, I I peruse Twitter in a very amateur way, I'm not on TikTok or Instagram.
1: Yeah. Well, Liver King's someone who's somewhat transcendent because I don't really use TikTok or Instagram much either, but he's kind of transcended the platform. Like he's someone who like, you know, Moby he talks about on Twitter now. But anyway, he's just like, a cool. again, this comes back to like, I think I'm aware of him for the reason I into the seed oil stuff. It's like the same Because the seed oil stuff is like don't eat industrial oils, and they really recommend like animal fats, and then that gets into like the carnivore movements, and then carnivore community leader, the carnivore community, and then the whole whatever rabbit holes, right? Anyway, he has his own protein powder now, and uh, it's called the Whole Beast. It's good stuff. I'm not sponsored. (laughs) Yeah, he's uh, that is Instagram. He's a character. He is a beast. Yeah, and he's a character for sure. He's just uh, kind of extreme. But anyway, so that's, that's food tech. Interesting. Clearly. I have a friend who writes a sustainability tech newsletter as well. And, uh, I don't know his subscriber count definitely under 15 K, but he should definitely, I should, I don't know if I've told him about swap stack or not. I should, if I haven't, but yeah, he's, be cool great. Stuff would there. Like he's got a super short format and he's also not like a VC scout, but kind of like interested in similar stuff maybe like an informal vc scout with like family offices or something but cool. in like the green tech sector so that'd be cool but yeah love uh emerging stuff and if kyle is here he would too he loves maybe space tech you fall space tech at all or is that yeah you like, a little bit um i don't I still i just feel like you might because of the context and i would be interested in it theoretically
0: yeah yeah there's a lot of different aspects of space tech overall um I, it's definitely, I think, an area that I would like to get back into um, after we sell, sell sell swap tech or do whatever we do with SwapSec. tech. Um, I think a lot of people question kind of like why are we working in space and what kind of value does it create if there's so much so many issues on Earth. Uh, like the billion dollar space race was was not a good look for the space tech industry, um, but there there's a whole aspect of environmental tech that. There's a lot of people focused on like how do we how do we do prevention? How do we build like better systems that are less environmentally unfriendly? Um, but there's also the reality that no matter what we do, we're going to see the impacts of um of climate change. Um mm-hmm. and they're going to get worse, a lot worse before they get better, if they get better. And there's all industry of companies that need to build for prevention um or adaptation. Mm-hmm. And, Part of that is just better, better understanding of weather patterns. Um, and that's where space tech comes in and mm. things like, um, like Starlink or better access, kind of like what a does, better access to low earth orbit. So you can have like mesh networks that are a little bit closer to earth, have better, um, better, like faster resolution or faster, um, relaying of information at higher resolutions to the ground so you know like hey there's like a really big superstorm coming and it's going to hit tomorrow and if that's going to start happening every couple of months we need to know that fast um and that's where space tech could be really interesting um if we don't create a space where there's too much space junk and we're just are stuck on earth i forget what the term is that for that but um the glass ceiling or is that something else it sounds right i think the glass ceiling is probably more a uh,
1: on Earth, at least salary issue. Uh, no, yeah, that's that's the wage gap. But as poor yeah. attempt at a joke, but it's similar. It's it's the idea of like sorry. you know, yeah, you, you get you can't go because there you know there's something blocking the path. There's, what, is that like the space junk? It's like you can't escape if there's stuff.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah. Except as, as you're not going to hit like a piece of glass. You're just going to get like ripped apart by a bunch of like small things traveling it. Speak of like yeah.
1: So more of like an electric perfect. fence kind of Yes, that's a perfect example. Like a yeah. really strong electric fence. Interesting. Or well, like a bar. Yeah, anyway. Getting carried up in analogies here. <laughs> but clearly there's some interesting things on the horizon, both if you're a generally interested person in startups, investing, et cetera, technology, or if you are an advertiser or or publisher, where should people start for any of those things? I think your Twitter links everything, but there's also domains and whatever.
0: Yeah. Um, Swapstacks at swap Um Free money is free money.xyz. Um, I think my Twitter is Schoenberger Jake or Jake Schoenberger. You'll
1: find me either I, way. I'll take care of that one. I I, I I don't know if I'll promise to find the uh, the My First Million episode for people, but I, I do at least find the handles of, of the major socials. Perfect. <laughs>
0: cool. But yeah, either of those two. Um, reach out to me directly if you want to talk to.
1: I was open. That wraps up this conversation with Jake from SwapStack. Three super quick takeaways for me, and then I'll send you on your way to the next thing. Uh, first one, as frequently mentioned, Joe Weeby. He was a guest on this podcast. I believe it was episode sixty-nine. Don't ask me why that's memorable. Anyway, I one of Joe's favorite sayings. Joe's kind of uh, his nickname is the doorman. Right? He's called the doorman. And that's because he has this philosophy of a thousand doors, which is really interesting about, you know, how the life you want in an unconventional path is like a thousand doors away and you just have to go through different rooms and meet different people. But the driving metaphor for that is that the best way to open doors for yourself is to open doors for others. And I think that's really cool with what Jake is doing, both, or that really describes what Jake is doing quite well uh, in terms of his personal publication, right? Helping investors find startups, helping startups find investors, and then helping newsletter writers find publications, and then helping advertisers find distribution. So he's opening all these doors for himself by opening doors for those other people. Pretty cool. Uh, second takeaway is Jake's got a lot of pivots in the story. He's very not afraid to change based on what's working and what's not working. You now, SwapStack is quite different from what it originally started out as. Uh, the name suggests that it was just a new place for people in SwapStacks to kind of promote each other's newsletters, and then they realized... You know, really advertisers have the money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're where we are. Uh, and that was also true for SwapStack and for PreMoney. His newsletter changed quite a bit since he first started it in terms of what the idea was, what it's become, some versions, some ideas, some business models, et cetera. Third and final takeaway is I'm just excited to see the future, especially towards the end of this conversation. We, uh, and really the whole time, we discussed different industries that are taking off and have really interesting things happening, sustainable food, sustainable energy. And then of course- Hoping be the word, I believe the first time we talked about this term and coined it, this is flashback, was with Jake, blog of Jake. He does not have a last name. He does not have a identity besides a blue circle. That episode was in the 50s, maybe April, May. No, no, no. I'd say March of 2021. Anyway, we discussed this term called media optimism, which basically is like people saying, spreading good news instead of just being defeatist on the internet about how bad things are. And I think this episode was a good example of that. And Swap Stack, and really the whole independent publisher movement in general, the majority of people that are creating substacks are like spreading news about good things that are happening, or they're trying to teach people. They're just trying to use written media, newsletters, to spread good vibes. Um, I said three super quick takeaways. I apologize for the misleading headline, the dishonesty, etc. But that's going to be it for me in this episode. Subscribe wherever you're listening if you'd like to know about the next one. If you don't know how to subscribe send me a DM. I'll help you figure it out. But I'd really, if you know how to send me a DM, you definitely could figure out how to subscribe. Anyway, say hey to Jake, check out Swabstack, subscribe to the pre-money list if that tickles your fancy, and have a great day. See ya.